you know, for me, I was thinking about, I didn't really have access to any language to explain what I had gone through. I think the language that I saw really didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, what what does work for me? And I see, you know, I, I have a longstanding myth, uh, interest in Greco-Roman myth, as I said. Um, and so to me, this is like my cultural heritage. And so I could look, it's like they're the folktales from my background. Anique McCaskill is a Halifax-based poet and professor of French and literature at St. Mary's University. Her third collection of poems, Shadow Blight, examines the pain and isolation of pregnancy loss through the lens of classical myth. She's my guest this week to chat about the dearth of material on this subject, the process of gathering it, and the elevation of her experience. I'm Tara Thorne, and this is The Tideline. Welcome to the last week of August, for when next we meet, it shall be September. The Halifax Urban Folk Festival starts this weekend. Kind of a soft launch here at the end of the week. On Sunday, you can check out Horse Bath. And then Monday, a French pop show with Sluice and Julie Aubey from Les Hay Babies. To be followed by a multi-venue lineup I'll tell you about next week. Those shows are at the Carlton. Hit HalifaxUrbanFolkFestival.com for more right now. This is the calm before the cultural storm. September always ushers in between festivals and Frush Week, and I am getting excited. But that's next week. This week, my guest is the poet Anique McCaskill, who will join me in studio momentarily, but first, a song. Once upon a time, like 2008, I was in a band with this person. Clarka Wineworm is coming to town with her new album, Easy Days, in tow. Clarka and Shoulder Season will be playing Sourwood Cider this Saturday, August 27th. And here's an early taste of what you can expect. This is 10 years. Never should have cut my hair. Looks Judgment 
Hello. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm a bit sweaty. How are you? Also sweaty. <laughs> it's like so humid so early in the day. Loving the last gasp of summer. I don't actually love it. Am I? Yes. Do you love it? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm going back to teaching, so I'll take whatever I can get. Right, because you teach at SMU. I do teach at SMU. Where I abandoned my English degree many years ago. Well, takes all kinds. I was going to say, I can't come back. It's too late. (laughs) What do they give you, 10 years, I think, to complete it? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. I think it depends on the institution. It definitely has been way longer than that. You can come sit in my classes. I don't care. (laughs) Come on it, though. Um, So... You are not from Halifax. No, you live here now. But tell me how you um, tell me how you came to uh, uh, career in poetry. How did you get into all that? Oh, I think it's just something I always loved. Um, I have a nice memory when I was about eight or nine. My mom gave me a beautiful peacock colored notebook about nine by twelve or something, and she wrote inside for Anique for more of your beautiful poetry. And I don't, I think because I was writing like broken lines, you know, probably nonsense, but. Um, that that word really worked for me in my little brain, so I held on to it. And then I've been loving poetry ever since, and I started taking it more seriously for myself about nine, ten years ago. Right. And do you have, uh, like, uh, your people that you love, your favorites? Oh, yeah, like big who? time. Uh, well, these days, definitely. Well, I have the new volume of Dion Brand's New and Selected, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful, and her new book is incredible. Um, and then Louisa Glick, Karen Soley, Evelyn Lau, uh, Alice Oswald more these days. Um, Audrey Lord, of course. Mm-hmm. Adrian Rich, Ovid, <laughs> Ovid. The old, the old people too. Sappho, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. So, is poetry something that you do um, in your daily life? Like, do you read a lot of it all the time? Oh, I read it all the time. Because I wrote a book, but I don't read. I'm not. It's not a great look. I, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what though? But you, I you read tell all the stories. time. I read all the time talk, yeah. on the internet. I don't like. I read useless things all the time. But yeah, I don't. But but it's something that you. It's like you participate in it. Oh yeah, I love to read poetry. I think, um, you know, I certainly read about a hundred times more than I write, at least. Wow. Right. So yeah, that is not my reach. <laughs> <laughs> um. So how did you come to um to want to take it seriously? Because like no one is out there going. You know what? Everyone should be a poet. Oh, I know, big time. <laughs> so so how how did you end up? Um, you know, kind of pointing your compass in that direction as it were um well I was doing a PhD on 16th century poetry mm-hmm. and so reading like French poets and some Latin poets of that period and I I really admired them and at one point a few years in I realized like I admired them and that I wanted to do what they were doing and one of the nice things about the 16th century is that it feels very um like these folks just did everything like they would write a prayer. They would write a pastoral poem. They would write a love poem. They would write a political poem. They just tried everything and dabbled in everything. That really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And so I started to read more contemporary poetry in English and then, you know, try out things for myself. And I had never stopped writing, but I had, it was mostly just like margins in the books I was reading and, you know, just little notes here and there. And so I started taking it a bit more seriously, um, inspired by these folks I was studying. And I don't know about poetic forms, even though, again, I haven't abandoned English degree. Um, but you, especially in this collection, you play with form a lot and just like yeah. how things look on the page. How does, does that, is that something that comes naturally? Like, is it something that you see when you're writing? Oh, I want this space around a particular word or how does that, how does that go? Yeah, with this collection, I actually, it was very intentional at the outset because I, um, in my previous two collections, I hadn't played with space so much. And I had this notion in my head that, 
Um, I was reading a lot of contemporary poetry and so seeing, you know, like lots of different play with form, traditional forms as well as really experimental stuff. And for some reason, I had it in my head that something like double spacing a poem was so cool, but it was too cool for me. And I wasn't I wasn't a hip poem, pit, a hip poet like that. So I wouldn't, I didn't give my permit myself permission to do it for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then it was around, you know, it's just a convergence of things. Like I had started some of the poems in this collection and I had been thinking for months about, oh, if only I were cool enough to double space my own poetry. And then I just let myself do it and, you know, played with fragments and, um, the suggestion of negative space with like square brackets and things like that as well. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's like and it enriches the reading experience so much more. And you, your books are with Gasbro Press, yes. who they're works of art. Like I'm holding it. It's yeah. so nice to touch. It's so beautiful. You can see the strings of like the hand yeah. stitching or whatever you call it. Um, how do they feel about like when you give them po- <laughs> when you give them poems based out like this? Like they're probably yeah. very excited. Yeah, I mean Andrew is just such a. Um, he's so. Andrew Steves of Gaspar Press, he's so bizarrely modest and he would say something like he just has like a baseline competency, but he's a genius, of course, um, in terms of design. And he just takes everything in stride. And, you know, I have had the experience when you publish in magazines, sometimes folks will say like, oh, this layout is too challenging Mm. for our typesetters. And that's like, that's never even a question with Andrew. He can just, you know, he takes it as it goes and he's very open and to, or he, you know, he was definitely in this book very open to that play with form. Mm-hmm. Cool. So let's talk about Chatterblight specifically. Um, your last book, Murmurations, was about was very intimate about relationships yeah. through nature. This is very intimate too, but you bring in um, this this myth angle. Yeah. Um, what made you want to kind of tell the story of pregnancy loss through through all of these myths? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of things, it started on a very intuitive level, and so I mean, I write about. Uh, ancient Greek and Roman myth and history a lot anyways. And I had written um, some poems about Ceres and Proserpine or Demeter and Persephone. And I didn't think they were about pregnancy loss at all. And I was, you know, I was simultaneously working on some poems about Eurydice and Orpheus. And so it was more just, um, you know, traditional feminist readings of these female characters. And then I was at the BAM Center for the Arts and uh, Karen Soli was one of my mentors and I showed her my first series in Persephone poem. And she said, you know, she had an interpretation on it, which was totally accurate for how the poem was working. But I, when I heard her say it, I realized, oh, this isn't what pulls me to this myth. Mm. It's this notion of, it's the representation of separation and grief. And so from there, I reworked that poem, started a new poem. And then I thought, well, I would really like to push this further. Where will I go? And the Niobe myth has always been one of my favorite myths just for the way it's written in Ovid specifically, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, but I never engaged with it. And then I realized that it had something there for me that I could work with. And I decided to focus specifically on Ovid. So I was looking at Ovid's representation of Ceres, Niobe, and then looked at some of the other women he talks about as well. Can you talk about the Niobe myth, just for people who don't know? Sure. So Niobe, it's a very old myth. Um, It's referenced in Homer's Iliad, for example. So it's at least that old. Um, And so, but seven centuries later, Ovid has a very beautiful and full account of the story where Niobe was basically in a rivalry with her best friend over, um, you know, motherhood. And very ah, women, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very contemporary <laughs> as well, and uh, and they fought, and Latona was disgusted with her and had her own children kill Niobe's children, and then Niobe's, and there uh, were fourteen of them. Um, depends on the myth, and right. obviously there's fourteen. Uh, sometimes there's twelve, 
and uh, they all died. And then Niobe literally, she grieved so long, she literally turned to stone. And so that's something that comes up again and again in Ovid is you have these literalization of um, repeated common metaphors, like, you know, she was hardened in her grief while she's literally turned to stone, Mm. things like that. Yeah, it's intense. It's very intense. I mean, I understand why you would connect it um, to to the subject matter in here, but is there a specific reason or um, or passages? Is it just the idea that this is a mother that has lost so much? Yeah, it's just the. I think it's the hardening in grief. Mm-hmm. I think it's the um, physical representation of it as well. And I went, you know, for me, I was thinking about. I didn't really have access to any language to explain what I had gone through. I think the language that I saw really didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, what what does work for me? And I see, you know, I, I have a longstanding myth, uh, interest in Greco-Roman myth, as I said. Um, and so to me, this is like my cultural heritage. And so I could look, it's like they're the folktales from my background. So I could look in them and find um, similar experiences or doubles. Mm-hmm. And so some of the myths I engage with are closer to my kind of loss than the Niobe myth. But I also, something that occurred to me after the book came out was that in accessing such a major myth, such a famous myth, I was elevating a bit my experience. Mm -hmm. And so taking it from, you know, sort of something that you don't dare say at the dinner table to something worth talking about on this scale. And I mean, the, I don't know what you call this on the back. Back matter. The, the the blur on the back. Yeah. But it it does reference the fact that we don't talk about miscarriage and we don't talk about pregnancy loss very much, even in the midst of all this abortion talk that we're talking about constantly. I remember uh, when I was in high school, Troy Amos put out a record called From the Choir Girl Hotel, and that was about a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And I thought... You had a whole record out of this because I was a teenager. I of didn't course, know any better. Of course. Um, so, uh, what is is there anything? What is existing in pop culture that you could even look to or draw from? Is that why you had to go back so far? <laughs> I mean, initially, yes, that is that is very much how it felt. Um, there are since some representations that really resonate with me. Um, I think of like Lise Gaston's poem that won the CBC Prize last year, James, um, and uh, you know there are even. It's, it's ambiguous, but there's some poems by Louisa Glick um, that seem to be about, you know, either an abortion with some mixed feelings or a miscarriage. And I, I feel very open about the fact that, like, I do have friends who have had abortions that they have mixed feelings about who say that, like, this book means a lot to them and speaks to them. So, you know, I, I like that openness. Like, I do wish we had more openness among people who can and do get pregnant to, mm-hmm. like, share our experiences and be a bit more complicated and messy about them. Um yeah, I mean, poems here and there. Uh, I'm struggling. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I know. Um, I can't even think of like the a The L movie. word. I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, the L word. It's got something for everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Um, I do wonder, like, uh, you just talked about uh, how it elevates the experience, but it, does it also put a distance for you? Like, it's a bit at arm's length? Definitely. I think that's part of it. And, you know, I, um, again, after the book was published, sometimes you need some distance to see your work clearly. And I don't, I don't think writers are very good at seeing their work clearly ever. But Mm -hmm. um, I did realize that there's only one of these persona poems, like one of these poems about a figure from Ovid that's spoken in the first person. Um, I have my own, uh, my own poems that are more firmly rooted in my own contemporary specific experience that are in the first person. But, you know, when I talk about Niobe, I say she. Um, when I talk about Hecuba, she. And I also, um, later in the collection, you know, this question of 
relating to these stories, like I do start to tease it out a bit in poems like Variant and Homeric Simile, like what what is the weight of this comparison? Like what is the significance of this comparison? But in a myth, um, in a story like uh, about Simile, who was a lover of Jupiter and the mother of Bacchus or Dionysus, the god of wine, she was separated from the baby. Uh, she died while she was still pregnant. And mm. so, I mean, I didn't die, but the baby died or the babies in my case died. And so that separation in pregnancy, I wasn't thinking about it at that time, but it doesn't surprise me now that I see that that's the poem I wrote in the first person mm. using mm-hmm. the I, right? Wow. Do you want to read something? Not, it doesn't <laughs> have to be that one. <laughs> I definitely cannot read that one. <laughs> okay. um, I'll read something else. Um, I'm going to read on the invention of the seasons, which is towards the back of the collection. You can't blame that part on the heavens and or hell. For Hades hath no such fury. Nor Jove. But a woman can do anything in her pain. If she had to lose, so the world would lose. For she tore at her hair. She beat her breast. Then she turned her rage to the black soil itself and to the sheep-like tufts of cloud and the Sicilian shepherds with their felt caps. They say she broke the plows with her own hands, that in her sorrow, the mother became the blight. Yeah. (laughs) So you have a number of pages here in the back, and you did in in Murmurations as well, talking about all the places that you're gathering stuff. Like some, some poets are... Just they're writing their feelings. And that's not a like that's not a I'm not shitting on them, but it's like there's not a ton of research. There's not a ton of academia uh, academia going into it. I remember in memorations, you're like, there's also a Drake song involved. Like <laughs> you're taking from a lot of places. Um, do you gather it all first and then start writing, or does it all just kind of work its way in and then you go back and go, This was here and this was here? Like, how do you pull it all together? Yeah, I am. Um- well, the poems in the book, some of the poems start with epigraphs, where there's the Latin and then my translation of verses from Ovid. And so uh, that and those poems specifically, the translation was very much part of the creative practice. So I would often, well, even just starting by transcribing, so writing out the Latin and kind of like sitting with the Latin for a minute, because Latin is so beautiful and Ovid is such an incredible Latin poet. Um, and then starting a translation and then getting into the poem or going straight to the poem and working on the translation later, it was kind of all part of the same exercise to me. So I did, I did find that very generative. Um, But with other poems, it was more, it was more just, you know, it was digested far enough that it was in the background and I could just call on it as I wanted to. And how long did it take you to to write this? Oh, um, I guess from about three years, three and a half years from the first the draft of the first poem, uh, which is the first poem in the collection, swimming upwards to the publication, and and do you, when do you have an idea? Three books in, when you have a collection where you're like, all this stuff fits together. I'm doing it all this way. Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this book and Murmurations were pretty cohesive in terms of theme. My first book, much less so, and the um, I'm working on another book now that's just you know, it's poems and I want to bring them together, but it is, I actually am struggling with that now seeing if there are certain pieces that just don't fit with the others. If it's really the start of two collections, um, when it's a themed collection, it, it feels a bit more, uh, manageable and clear. And, um, you know, I, I did, I did get some feedback that allowed me to expand this collection and see what I needed to fill in a little bit at one point, but 
uh, overall, like with this one, it was, this was, it was a very difficult book to mm-hmm. write. Um, but in terms of seeing how the work was functioning, that part was pretty easy. Right. And is it the kind of thing, like when you write songs that there's a bunch on the, on the cutting room floor or is this all of it? Oh, that's a good question. I, yeah, there's definitely some that didn't make it into the book. I find that as I progress, I write fewer and fewer drafts and then I just tend to carry those drafts through mm-hmm. to completion. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely when I started though, it was, I was just a mess and, you know, like I write a bit of fiction now and I find that that's how I write fiction because I'm not as practiced at it is that I'll just explode so many pages and then maybe keep 10 or whatever, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of theater people and musicians through here. I have not had many poets. It's been a while since Rebecca Thomas and Sue Goyette were on this show. Yeah. How did um, how did COVID affect your creative process? Well, I'm uh, my creative... Well, I was very fortunate, Did definitely did not see this coming, but I kind of went into the pandemic um, with a, a few things, including this. Um, mostly drafted out in the first draft. And so I had something to work with. Um, Definitely generating new material uh, under COVID felt a bit different. Um, Didn't always feel very feasible. You know, some days I just, I think I felt, I I imagine a lot of us felt quite stagnant. And I think I was stagnant in my ideas as well. But because I had so much of this drafted at the outset, I was able to just, I was able to work with it. I had something to work with. And so that made it much more feasible. How have you found uh, uh, your peers? Have, have they like? Has it been up and down? <laughs> like oh, like with production. Pro- yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, everyone. You know, everyone's different. Like some people, I don't, I don't know how they do it, but some people are super generative. Um, maybe especially in the toughest of times, honestly. And then some of us kind of just shut down. I mean, it's work, right? Art is work, like anything yep. else. And yep. so, if you have a hard time doing your other kinds of work, you probably have a hard time making new art. And were you teaching online? Yeah, I've taught online for the past two years. I'm going back to the classroom in September. And how do you feel about that? Because I'm a, I I can't imagine teaching online, like uh, and getting nothing back. <laughs> yeah, it's been hard. I I mean some, but I have to say, and I really noticed this year in particular. I had r- some really kind emails from students at the end of the first and second semesters, and I feel it seems as if students are registering how hard it is on us. And, you know, like my students are, a lot of my students are quite kind. And so thinking to email me and say that they like the course, that does mean a lot because I really don't know. And I do care, you know, whether or not the course is working for them. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's definitely been a struggle to adapt. But I, at the same time, I've been so grateful that for the past two years, I haven't had to be in the classroom and I have a bunch of students who have been able to take at least, you know, some courses with me online. Um, If not all their courses depends on, you know, the time period in the pandemic. What do you think the vibe's going to be going back? You know, I really don't know. <laughs> Timid, excited, somewhere in between. I mean, I'm I'm excited. Um, I'm so glad there's a mask mandate at all three, I think, of the universities here. I think Dalhousie led the charge, but um, it does seem like most of the universities across the country are going with mask mandates. And so I'm so, so grateful for that. Um, that made me feel relieved. And so, yeah, mostly positive right now. Cool. So you, one of those subject you teach is French, the language, have, right? Correct? I, I pretty much only teach French. Oh, there you go. Okay. Language so, and literature. Do you, yeah. write, do you write in French? Do you have a French poetry collection in the works? Uh, well, I've started, I actually was the other day trying to translate some poems from this book into French to see what that might look like. Um, and I'm doing some translations uh, with my mom right now um, <laughs> of someone else. Uh, but most mostly I do translations from French into English. Um, I prefer I prefer to write fiction in French, um, not so much poetry. 
But I think that's because there's more contemporary French language writers who write fiction that I admire. And so I have, you know, something to call on there. But maybe one day. Do you think in French or English? Both. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, I, if I'm if i in a Francophone area, I think a lot more in French. Right. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a, my friend Trevi's just started this this power pop French band. And, oh. like, and so he can't, you can't rhyme the same way. So I'm always like, oh. how do you write songs? Well, rhyming is easier in French. Is it? Oh, big time. Huh? I did write, <laughs> I wrote some political poems about the convoy in French okay. this year. And they're all rhyming because it's so much easier to rhyme in French. So I thought I'd take advantage of it. Wow. Yeah. I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> But I want it, I want the name of your friend's band because I play Sluice. music for my sluice. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna go look for it. Thank you. No problem. So do you have any I know you just did a reading on the weekend, but do you have any other events coming up? Word on the street, anything oh, like that? No, uh, not word on the street. I'm reading in Toronto on September 9th. I'll be reading at the Gasparo Waste Goose in October, and I'm reading at Ottawa's Verse Fest sometime this fall, um, because I just finished my tenure as their 2021-22 right. poet in residence. Very so cool. I owe them a reading. Awesome. So I got this at Bookmark. You can get it directly from Gaspro Press. Yeah, Bookmark, Venus Envy, mm-hmm. King's Co-op Bookstore, LaHave River Books, lots of independent bookstores. Excellent. The book is called Shadow of Light. Anik McCaskill, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Take I really care. appreciate it. Palmer Jamison at the Golden Palm and produced by the Halifax Examiner.